So in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews took a little detour and uh, let us know that uh, he needed to deal with some spiritual immaturity before he uh, dealt with the rest of the explanation about this guy, this mysterious Melchizedek. And so in chapter 7, he's going to tell us about Melchizedek. But um, first, let me remind you that we are early in the story in Genesis. The, the flood happened in Genesis chapter 11. We're introduced to Abram in in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, we find this guy and his family living in a place called Ur. And the Lord said, go to a place I will show you. Ur is in modern day Turkey. We would call it, well, actually we would call it Iraq today because it's just south of uh Babylon, which is near Mosul. And so Abram was in the Fertile Crescent on the Euphrates River, and God said, it's time to move. And he took up his entourage, wife and children. He was 75 years old by now, and so it wasn't like he was just out of college or maybe he was a lifelong learner, but he 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 migrated up along the Euphrates and into the northern part of what we would call Palestine today. He actually came down through Syria because his route went through Damascus, one of the oldest cities in the world, and uh, and then down into Canaan or the Promised Land. So we are really early. We're before Moses. Uh, were before Joseph, before uh, Isaac, before Jacob, before any of that. So the Ten Commandments haven't been issued. God has not really been identified in this part of the scripture. Now, we met him in the Garden of Eden, and we met him when he said to Abram, it's time for you to leave. But we don't know Really, the 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 covenant God of of uh, Jehovah Yahweh, he, he hasn't really been developed yet. And so, when Abram's story here in Genesis fourteen, which is where he met Melchizedek, when that story takes place, we're still very young in the Genesis story. And and so, when we start talking about a a, a a priest and king who recognizes God as both provider and redeemer, as creator and sustainer. It's an incredibly mature view of God that was stated by somebody that's mysterious and only mentioned twice in the Old, in the Old Testament. And, and yet we, we get the idea that God is working and that 
Abram is not responsible for telling everybody. Somebody has already told Melchizedek about God, and he has embraced Jehovah. Uh, he's embraced this, this God who will be the God of the Hebrews, the covenant-keeping God, the God with all those names, but it's very early in the story. I, I say that because the writer of Hebrews is, he really likes this guy Melchizedek. <laughs> And so he says in chapter 7, verse 1, that he is the king of Salem. We know that's Jerusalem. He met Abraham, and that's a little bit of a typo because Abraham was still Abram at the time that Melchizedek met him. It wasn't until Genesis 15 that God changed his name. But he returned from the slaughter of the kings. Backstory, there were five kings in Palestine who attacked Abraham and his Abram and his family. They kidnapped his nephew Lot, who uh, was always giving him trouble. Uh, Abram recruited or he called upon the 300 plus uh, trained men. Apparently, he had trained them in both war and faith. And they went and rescued Lot. And on their way back, the king of Salem who is identified as, look on uh, in, uh, 7, uh, verse 2. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is the king of peace. And one of the writers said, righteousness always precedes peace. He is without father or mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning or end. And the response is interesting to me here. Abram, Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tenth of the spoils. Now, archaeological evidence points to uh, there are a lot of cultures who believe in bringing a portion of the spoils to God to a God, to their God. It's, it's not uncommon to bring uh, an offering as a thank you for success. But that's not the word that was used here. The word used here is a tithe. And, and that's, of course, where we get the idea that a, a tenth of our income, a tenth of our, uh, our earnings is, is to God, is to his work. But the, one of the writers pointed out, and so did, of course, the writer of Hebrews, uh, that the tithes are always from the inferior to the superior. That's verse 7. It's, it's not a dispute. So Abraham was saying by his actions, I am giving a tenth to someone who is greater than I. And that was when he gave that as a uh, as part of his uh, uh, thanks to uh, Melchizedek. He he said, "I am giving to someone greater than I." And in a in a sense, Melchizedek was standing for God. When you give to the work of the Lord here at Dunwoody Baptist Church, you're not giving to me. You're, you're giving to God. Now, you may say, Alan, take this check and use it the way it needs to be used, but you're believing that God is going to do something with that offering. And so Abram's 
tent, his tithe, was an act of worship. On Sunday, I'm going to use the word consecration, that it's an act of setting something apart. And when we set apart uh, a resource, we also set apart ourselves. So he, he gave a tithe, and what the writer of Hebrews is wanting to make sure we set up is that Melchizedek was a priest. He was an Old Testament priest. He was the first Old Testament priest. And unlike any of the priests in the line of Aaron or the Levitical priest, he was both priest and king. Now, the Levitical priest separated church and state. You couldn't be a priest and a king. If you were a king, couldn't be a priest. If you are a priest, couldn't be a king. There are only two examples that that wasn't the case, and they're both indicated by the writer of Hebrews, that Jesus was a priest and king on the order of Melchizedek. He also had a comment about the genealogy. In the, in the text, it says he had no genealogy. Well, what the writer of Hebrews is doing there is, is he's, he's saying to the readers who are very intellectual, right? They, they're trying to make all this make sense. And in their mind, the priest was always of the line of Aaron. And because Aaron was of the tribe of Levi, all of the priests had to be Levites. That's how we know Barnabas was a priest. He was of Levitical descent. So Jesus was from what tribe? Judah. Judah. So he's not a Levite. <clears throat> so like Melchizedek, he was not of the priestly tribe. And so when the writer of Hebrews is, he, as he has throughout the book, he's setting up comparisons. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Although some writers say Jesus was Melchizedek, that this is a bit of a Christophany, that, that, that we see him uh, representing the Christ figure to Abram in the Old Testament. I I think that's that's a way to worship, and it's not a bad thought. I don't think it's completely accurate. I think he was a Canaanite priest that that God had uh, spoken to, because in Genesis fourteen uh, he refers to him as both a priest and a king, and he also says that he brought out to Abram bread and wine. File that away for chapter 9, which we may get to by the end of the week. So beginning in chapter 11, uh, chapter uh, 7, verse 11, um, this pretty much sets up his whole argument. He says in verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? In other words, if the law could get it done, we wouldn't have needed a priest on the order of Melchizedek. If the law was not flawed, 
we wouldn't need to replace it. If Melchizedek was all we needed, uh, uh, he, he preceded the law. It was simply his recognition. It's, it's almost like he, he reclaimed what was lost in the fall, where Adam and Eve should have just said, God, your presence is all we need. We don't need the fruit from that forbidden tree. Your presence is all we need. And so Melchizedek said, God is possessor of all things, creator. God is redeemer of all things. And so to know God as creator and redeemer, that sets up the, the whole argument of the, the writer of, of Hebrews. And so um, now we, we get to the, uh, the, the argument itself where verse 18, he says, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. And so he's talking about the law itself, that, that, that consecration is to a better hope introduced through which we draw near to God. And so he uh, then goes to Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn he won't change his mind, you and David is speaking to some future king. You are a priest forever. And then in verse 22, which I think is the key to understanding chapter 7, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So then he compares the priests. And uh, chapter 27 uh, chapter, verse 27, he says, he has no need, like these high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for the people. That sounds like what he said back in chapter 5, when he says that earthly priests have to offer for their own sins, as well as the sins of the people, not so with Jesus. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. Glory. So then in chapter 8, and stop me, anybody got a, a chapter 7 question that we need to get to? Y'all are looking at the clock going, no way he's doing this in 10 minutes. You're right. <laughs> You're absolutely right. So in verse 1 of chapter 8, it was like the writer of Hebrews did the same thing I just did. Does anybody still have questions about chapter 7? Because he summarizes, he said, here's the point. Here, here's what we're trying to say. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. This isn't the first time we've talked about Jesus on the throne. Back in chapter 4, verse 18, it says that he was enthroned on a throne of grace, and we added not on a throne of judgment. Ms. 418, mm -hmm. thank you. Now, there's another interesting tidbit here. Does anybody remember the uh, detailed descriptions of the furniture in the temple? Now, uh, I, this the word for tent here is tabernacle. So he's not really even talking about the, ta the, ta the temple. He's talking about the tabernacle. And 
And one writer says it's about accessibility. More, more people could relate to the synagogue or the tabernacle than they could to the temple because only the Jews in Jerusalem got to go to the temple regularly. And so he's, he's almost bringing the, the, the metaphor down to real people. And he says, we have such a high priest in this tabernacle who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So he's not in an earthly tabernacle. Now, I wouldn't expect you to remember this. I didn't until uh, one of the commentaries pointed it out. In the tabernacle, in all of the description of the furniture, there is no seat for the priest. There's, his work is never done so he never gets to sit down. I thought, I was told that he had bells on so they could hear him move. And that if the bells weren't moving, he was probably dead. And they had a rope tied to him and pulled yeah. him out because nobody else could go. But there wasn't any That's the one day a year. Yeah, the yeah. day of atonement when he was in the Holy of Holies. And we're going to talk about that in more oh, in a second. You're talking about the other rooms? There no in in the tabernacle, there is no place for the priest to sit down. His work is never done. And so when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, he's saying this is a high priest and king whose work is done. Well, Alan Jackson. <laughs> I just read the news. Um, isn't it also Stephen Bastone is the only one time when I see him seated. Yeah. And and back in 418, it says that he is uh, on a throne. He he is seated on a throne. And so we get this imagery that the work of the law could never be finished. Mm -hmm. 418 of Hebrews 418. Isn't that right? 16, 416. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace. 416. Good catch. So Jesus is compared to Melchizedek, and it's it's to say that Melchizedek was was the law before there was law, that he was, he was simple, he was pure, he, was, he, he predated all of the, uh, the uh, contrary disobedience of the Israelites. He simply represented the law. And the, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, but that needed to be replaced because the law is imperfect. You give Adam and Eve one law, they break it. You have one job. You There's one rule. There's not even 10 that Moses will have. There's only one. Stay away from that tree. And so. Who? Melchizedek was king over Jerusalem. Yeah. 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 He was the, the king over the city. We know nothing about the people from Jerusalem back then. Uh, we just know that he was regarded as priest and king. So in, in chapter 8, we begin to describe the tabernacle, verse 2, that he, Jesus is the minister in the true tabernacle, the one that's in heaven, the one that has a seat. 
He, he's the Lord said that I'm not man. Every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. So it's necessary for this priest to have something to offer. If he's on earth, Jesus wouldn't be a priest at all because those priests offer gifts according to the law, which is only a shadow of the heavenly things to come. So, so the writer of Hebrews is backing up while he's going forward. And he's once again, talking to us about the superiority of Christ as the high priest, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the prophets, better than the law, better than Melchizedek. And the place of worship of this heavenly priest and king, his throne room is better than anything we can imagine. Then he spends a little bit of time kind of telling us where he's going. Uh, Verse 6, it is Christ who has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. So the old covenant, it's, it's restated here. We, uh, we, we, we saw it in, in, or would see it in Genesis chapter 15. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will give you uh, fame and power and, fortune and possessions and and abram says you can have all that i just want a kid uh you you promised me a son and so the the covenant is that he is a covenant keeping god so now he's telling us that there is a different kind of covenant because it's based on better promises i'm not just going to give you stuff on earth i'm going to give you eternal life i'm going to give you a forever i'm going to give you an eternal rest remember that And so now he quotes Jeremiah for a whole lot of verses. This, uh, the the quotation beginning in chapter uh, 8, verse 8, it says, uh, uh, Behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. Now, anybody remember the timeline for Jeremiah? Six hundred years before Christ. Six hundred years. So he told us to do something, and we do it, and then we're wondering what happens next. He told Jeremiah there would be a new covenant. He didn't tell him it was six hundred years before it would take place. He, he he didn't tell him it was going to be. Uh, Jeremiah was probably thinking about when the exiles would return, there would be a new set of rules. That wasn't it at all. There would be a a new covenant. And he says, when I will establish a covenant with Israel, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, verse 9, they didn't continue in the covenant. Verse 10, this is the covenant that I, I will make. And then he describes the new covenant. The laws are in their minds and on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor because everyone will know. Everyone will be informed. Each one will his brother say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful towards their iniquities. And then the the, the main emphasis of Jeremiah 
And the main difference between the old and the new covenants is in the last part of verse 12. I will remember their sins no more. And so he says, and when the new covenant comes, the old one is obsolete. Verse 13. Now, before I dive into chapter nine briefly, do you remember what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do with this whole letter? Remember what he's trying to do? Don't keep trusting what you know. I'm going to do something new. Dude, you're comfortable where you are. You're, you're comfortable in the way things have worked before. When, when God first told Moses that he could get water out of the rock, he told him to do what? Hit it with a staff. Hit it with a stick. The next time God told him to get water out of the rock, he said, speak to it. Speak to it. What did Moses do? Hit it with a stick. He did what he knew. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us, it is scary. It's terrifying. But I'm going to do a new thing. And, and it, it will be beyond what you can imagine. Instead of goats and bulls and rams and lambs, I'm going to give up my own son. Mm. And that is such an extravagant sacrifice mm. that never again will a high priest even be necessary. Because this has ended it. This, this has ended it. It's, it's almost like when, when Adam and Eve tried to provide for their own nakedness, they did it with plants that would crumble and decay. God said, I'm going to give you an animal skin, but something's got to die for it. And, and it's here he's saying, never again do you need the priest. You have a high priest who is better than Melchizedek. And so... I'm going to skip down a little bit. A minute ago, I said that I thought that part of the reason that in chapter 8, it's talking about a tabernacle or a tent instead of a temple. It has to do with accessibility. Listen here. Verse 6, chapter 9. These preparations, and, and he's just talked about the Holy of Holies, the tent. He said these preparations were made for the priest to go regularly into the first section. So everybody gets to go into the first section. And then he says, then uh, the second section into the second, verse 7, only the high priest goes and they, but once a year. So there's the Holy of Holies that you're talking about. So the accessibility Everybody can go into the first section of the temple or the tabernacle, but then there's a curtain, and only one person had the credentials to get in there. But listen, he says it was symbolic for the present age, verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The worshiper doesn't get to give the offering. He has to let a priest do it on his behalf. And then the last line, they deal only with food and drink, various washings, regulation for the body. But when Christ appeared, verse 11, as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one made with hands, the one in heaven, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by the means of blood and goats, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Never again will a priest have to go in. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, he purifies our conscience. He lets us participate. He lets us uh, be accessible to God himself, his forgiveness, his atonement, to the great inheritance. Verse 15, he's the mediator of that new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then here's where I said to be listening. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. We celebrate communion and we will Sunday to represent the body and the blood of Christ with the bread and with the cup. And the writer of Hebrews understood that we would need to be reminded of the gravity of the sacrifice because he said back in the day, verse 19, when every commandment of the law had been declared, Moses took the blood of calves and goats and sprinkled the book and the altar and the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant. Indeed, under the law, verse 22, almost everything was purified with blood. This priest sprinkled it on everything. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There is no forgiveness. So a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, a better sacrifice, a perfect tabernacle, a better tabernacle, a perfect holy of holies, a better Holy of Holies, a better sacrifice, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the law, better than the prophets, better than the tabernacle. He sent Christ. And he says, verse 27, 26. Well, verse 23, it's a better sacrifice. But as it is, verse 26, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's, it's mind-nubbing that we are so casual about the blood of Christ. And if we don't do anything else with communion on Sunday, it's that we examine ourselves and we, we fall on our faces to know that none of us are righteous. And yet he has shed blood for us. It's an amazing, amazing book. Um, I'm looking forward to Sunday where we have baptism. We have the Lord's Supper. And we have three chapters of Hebrews that I will not go into detail near as much as I just did. So bonus coverage for you. Thanks, everyone. You did really well. <laughs> <laughs> Good job.
balance. Uh, well, 